Hey everyone, thank you so much to those of you who listened to our 90 second teaser and decided to come back. Or maybe you've just stumbled upon us because the internet's a really weird place. Either way, we're glad you're here. We know your attention is pulled in so many different directions and we're going to do our best to make meaningful use of the time during which we're asking for your attention. We take very seriously the notion that we can't play fast and loose with the facts. Right now, in this episode, everything you'll hear comes from information recalled off the top of my head. I'll work incredibly hard to get the details right and do my sincere best to tell you when I'm not sure of something. I'm an incredibly private person, so this isn't really a natural forum for me, but I believe that with opportunity comes responsibility. So I'm fighting my natural tendencies and hoping to open up in a way that can do some good. I hope we have an ability to reach a lot of people. People who look different than each other. People who worship differently. People who love differently. People who, on paper, have really different life experiences. I hope we can create a space where I can say I've been going through it. Where you can say you've been going through it. Helped. Where we can admit that our country has been going through it. A forum for people who know that sometimes the only way out is through. I'm Michael. I'm Jake. And you're listening to Very Public Breakdown. For the sake of credibility, it's time for a little disclaimer that probably won't surprise anyone. I'm a Democrat. All my work has been on behalf of Democratic candidates and the ideals they represent. Sometimes, though, I think Democrats have a hard time articulating what we stand for. At the end of the day, I believe in a Democratic Party that is for the everyday person. That definition is vague by design. I think, one way or another, most of us see ourselves as just everyday people trying to make it work in a complex world. I believe in a Democratic Party in the mold of one of my favorite presidents, who happens to be a Republican, Teddy Roosevelt. He said, When I say I believe in a square deal, I do not mean to give every man the best hand. If the cards do not come to any man, or if they do come and he has not got the power to play them, that is his affair. All I mean is that there shall be no crookedness in the dealing. I believe in a Democratic Party that is visionary and thinks big, but also works to deliver results for people now. There's this great story about Harry Hopkins, who was a close advisor of President Franklin Roosevelt. He was battling conservative members of Congress who argued that the economic problems of the Depression would work themselves out in the long run. Hopkins replied that people don't eat in the long run, they eat every day. Sometimes I think we lose sight of just how right Harry was. If you're looking for the latest political gossip, you've come to the wrong place. We're not looking to be shills for any candidates in particular, but we're also steering away at all costs from cheap shots and gotcha moments. You spend a lot of time with the people you work with in this field, and sooner rather than later, coworkers become friends, and sometimes those friends become chosen family. While I may not be fighting in the same trenches as my Democratic friends who continue to work their asses off trying to make the world a better place, I hope they continue to see me as an ally in that quest. So, Michael, soon, not soon enough, too soon, soon, too soon, too soon, soon enough, there's going to be a presidential election coming up. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh can I not? Right. But no, uh, 2020 is going to be incredibly important. And, um, you know, right now there's like 25 candidates running in the Democratic primary. There's no shortage of material to talk about. And, you know, maybe we should think about doing a little segment on the 2020 election each week. Um, I think that may be something uh, that people would find interesting. Yeah. Uh, but we'd be here all day if we tried to hit all the candidates. So for now, I'm going to try 
and not for I have a list here. So to be to be clear, I have the list of names, and I'm just going to try to give you a little rundown, um, a little hot take on the 20 candidates who will be appearing in the first Democratic debates, which are next Wednesday and Thursday in Miami. Uh, I'm sorry to those who, um, you know, to to those who I'm not listing here who didn't make the debate stage, but. As I said earlier, you can't be everything for everybody. So check your problems elsewhere. First, let's talk about the candidates on night one, Wednesday, June 26th. Julian Castro. He's the former mayor of San Antonio, Texas. Pretty young, like 44 years old, I think. He was the former secretary of HUD, which stands for Housing and Urban Development. You know, in politics, there are all these acronyms, right? Like HUD, DHS, whatever, HHS. And I don't think people really know what they mean. So... HUD, Housing and Urban Development for President Obama. He's from Texas, obviously, uh, Latino. And, you know, I, I don't know a lot about him, but I think, like, good luck to him. Um, John Delaney. John is the former uh, Maryland congressman from Western Maryland. He's a really successful business person, comes with a lot of independent wealth. Um, you know, I, I think he sort of is trying to play this moderate lane, which there's certainly space for. Um, he brings a really important voice that we as a party can't be pro-worker if we're not also pro-business. Now, um, you know, I think there are probably a lot of people who will have uh, qualms with that, but I do think it's true. You know, you, you can't you can't be pro-worker if you aren't also sort of supporting in some ways. You know, that doesn't mean giving them dumbass tax breaks, but if you aren't also supporting the businesses that employ them. Uh, Tim Ryan. He's a congressman from, I think, northeastern Ohio. I don't know a ton about him either, but there's got to be something to be said for the fact that he manages to hold down this district with a lot of blue-collar workers, uh, some of the very same people who a lot of people argue we need to win back if we're going to win a state like Ohio. Bill de Blasio. To quote Casey Musgraves, if you ain't got nothing nice to say, don't say nothing at all. Though I hear the water in New York is what makes their bagels really good, so thanks for the water, Bill. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii. Uh, Jay Inslee. Jay's the current governor. <laughs> it's true. I have wanted to go to Hawaii and I truly have nothing else nice to say. Um, Jay Inslee. Jay's the current governor of Washington State. He's really based his candidacy around the urgency of climate change. So if that's an issue that you're passionate about, like you may want to give him a look before the debates. Better O'Rourke. Uh, Beto clearly has this ability to uh, excite people. You know, he raised $80 million in his race against uh, Rafael Ted Cruz in uh, 2018, came within like three points of winning, which in Texas is just really impressive. Uh, I'm not sure how he's going to do in this race, but uh, he did raise a lot of money in the first week or however long that he was in the race. Um, And so I think that there are a lot of people who are interested to see how he does. Cory Booker, he's a senator from New Jersey. African-American, and I sort of view him as one of the sort of moral compasses in this race, right? Like, if you've ever, I I think he's a really nice guy, first of all, uh, really well-intentioned, and if you've ever watched him speak, it kind of feels like um, he's he's taking you to church, right? So I'm really excited to see how he does, um, and I think that he will, you know, my take is he'll probably be in it for the long haul. Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, from Massachusetts, she's probably one of the most widely known candidates. Whether you agree with her or not, she seriously has a plan to address almost all the problems we're facing as a country. I'd call her like the intellectual base of the Democratic Party. She certainly isn't without her vulnerabilities, but if you look at someone who's sort of able to fill some of that populist space that Donald Trump, you know, feigns 
you know, being a populist. I think Elizabeth Warren is sort of one of those candidates who may be able to put him on the back foot um, and make him go on the defensive. Uh, and then Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota. This one's a little hard um, because she's our home state senator. Uh, I think she, she's wonderful, incredibly popular here. Uh, she's done a great job for the state. Um, I think that she, one of her biggest strengths is, you know, like she may not be the person who, you know, gets crowds roaring and draws the largest, draws the largest groups of people. But uh, I think what she is, is really reliable. And, you know, in this age of Trump, I think there's a lot to be said for our elected officials, just sort of us being able to go to bed and know that, um, you know, we wake up and Rome isn't going to be burning. And I think like if that's what you are looking for, uh, you may want to give Senator Klobuchar a, shout, uh, a look. Night two, Marianne Williamson and Andrew Yang. I don't know a lot about either of them, but, you know, I think there's something to be said for. Uh, people running for office who haven't done it before. I think they bring a fresh approach. I'm not sure exactly sort of what they're basing their candidacies on, but I mean, you got to give it to people who don't have a political base, you know, a natural political base to start from and, and have managed to, you know, either be polling at 1% or whatever the, the baseline is uh, nationally in, in multiple polls uh, or get 65,000 donors, which really isn't easy to do when you've got 300 people running for president there's sort of a finite group of people who are paying attention and contributing. So, you know, I'm interested to see what, what they have to say. Um, Bernie Sanders ran in 2016. I, I, I don't need to say anything about that. Michael Bennett, he's the senator for, uh, senior senator from Colorado. Um, I think that, you know, he, he seems to be one of those people that just like people like. He seems like a cool dude. Like I'd probably, I'd probably want to like, have a, a, a Sauvignon Blanc with Michael uh, with Michael Bennett. Um, I, I I don't really like to describe people as being in these lanes like liberal, progressive, moderate, conservative, whatever. I think it simplifies things. Um, but you know, I I think that um, you know he Colorado is an important state. Uh, he's managed to win there multiple times, and I think people should you know see see what he has to say too. Eric Swalwell, congressman from California. I don't know a ton about him. He's young. I don't know exactly how old, uh, but I think he may be one of the younger candidates or is one of the younger candidates that's going to be on the stage. Um, so, you know, good luck to him. John Hickenlooper, former two-term governor of Colorado. So from the same state as Michael Bennett. Uh, he's no longer in office, though. Uh, he really is kind of openly playing this moderate lane. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to play. I think the 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 electorate, you know, I'm not sure that I buy into the idea that people, the party has moved to the left. I think it's sort of like the the fringes of, and I don't say fringes negatively, but the fringes of the parties tend to be sort of the, the, the most uh, impassioned people. Um, so I don't know. I think there may be space for someone like Hickenlooper, uh, but he did a great job, it seems to me, from a distance in Colorado. I mean, you can smoke weed, and uh, I think they abolished the death penalty, so good for them. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. She uh, was appointed to the Senate to fill Hillary Clinton's Senate seat when Hillary was uh, nominated to be Secretary of State, so she's been there since 2009. Um, she, her, One of her claims to fame, and I think she's really proud of the fact, that she has the highest percentage of voting against uh, President Trump's nominees, uh, cabinet nominees, and I think judges as well. Um, so she really is sort of positioning herself as this like 
antidote to Trump. Um, I, I don't know how that's going to go. You know, she it's she's not just against him. She does have plans for things, um, but we'll see. Um, but certainly, you know, being from New, from New York uh, with the with the big money base um, and a lot of voters and a lot of delegates in the primary, I think you know you kind of got to assume that she is uh, a, a factor in the primary. Joe Biden, uh, Uncle Joe. Um, I, I don't think a lot needs to be said about him. I think you know. Um, the sort of general consensus, or at least the story that the media is trying to play, is that uh, that uh, Vice President Biden is going to be able to bring back a lot of working class voters who in 2016 sort of bolted the party and, and are some of the some of the factors uh, that led to the election of Donald Trump. Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure that I buy into that theory. I'm not sure how many uh, how many of those voters are coming back. Um, but I think that's probably an interesting conversation for us to have later. But I also do believe that, like, the one thing about about that issue is that, like, well, while we may not know whether those people are coming back, I think, like, Biden is is doing what's really important to sort of be like, just because you don't know doesn't mean you don't try. And I think half of getting people to vote for you is showing up. And I think that, um, you know, in those sort of, I, I hate, these stupid terms like blue collar because nobody knows what that means. Like, do people go to work wearing shirts with blue collars? I don't know. Um, I, You know what I don't like are shirts that have like a white shirt with like a blue collar. You know, like, you know what I mean? Y'all listening know what I mean. I think they're ugly. And if you have one of those shirts in your closet, throw it away. Um, let's see. Two left, right? Um, Senator Kamala Harris from California. Um, she was elected to the Senate in 2016. 16. Yes, 2016. Uh, obviously, California, the largest state in the country. Uh, I think they have over 450 delegates, which is a ton. Um, and she, you know, you could make the case that she's kind of got an upper hand um, there. I think that, you know, being an African-American woman, there's something to be said. You know, I, I sort of believe that we had two things going for us with our past two Democratic nominees. And, you know, some of those things worked better than others and some didn't work at all. But you know, there's a lot to be said for someone who, like Barack Obama, was really able to excite and motivate uh, the African-American community. And someone like Hillary Clinton, who unfortunately wasn't successful, but really was able to sort of be a an inspirational person for a lot of women. Right. And so it's going to be interesting to see if uh, Kamala Harris can sort of uh, pluck people out of both of those buckets and make a coalition. Um, but again, being from California, um, she's incredibly smart um, and she's sort of really sort of setting herself up as someone who uh, can prosecute the case against Donald Trump. She was a prosecutor, uh, former attorney general of California. Um, so I think um, we'll we'll all be having eyes on her. Finally, Pete Buttigieg, the current mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He's 37 years old, gay. Um, I think it's really exciting, again, talking about just the progress that's been made on on like the issue of LGBT rights in this country. The fact that one of the, the, by polling and by sort of how much money they're raising, one of the top contenders for the presidency of this country in 2019 is a gay man who's 37 years old and the mayor of a small country you know, a small city in this, in the middle of the country. I think that's pretty cool. Um, clearly he's, you know, he's a veteran. He's, uh, able to, you know, be a credible messenger to people our age, right. You know, uh, in their thirties, uh, I'd say millennials, but I hate calling us that. Uh, but I guess it's what we are. Um, and you know, so I think that, 
I'm not sure how how he does. I've I've never seen him debate. I've never seen him really speak in person or anything like that. But you know, there's very clearly, undeniably, uh, excitement out there for Pete, and uh, I'm excited to see how he does too. So I think that I hit all 20 candidates who you'll see on stage. Um, you know, we it'd be interesting to see who you all are excited about. So hit us up on Instagram, very public breakdown, or Twitter, and let us know. Uh, who you're excited to see in the debate, and what questions you're excited to see the candidates answer. Looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So, Jake, I've done a lot of the talking today, and to be honest, I'm really grateful to have a captive audience. But I think from a political interest and engagement standpoint, you're going to have a lot more in common with the people who are listening to this show. You're smart, you care, you want to be part of the solution, but like you've got other shit going on, right? And that's awesome. That's where most people are. So where's your head at, where is your head at politically? What's your take on things? What do you care about? You know, just tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think right now politically, I'm mostly disengaged. Uh, I'm not cued in on the daily news cycle. Uh, I think... Like a lot of people, the 2016-2017 the cycle really got us beat down, and I think we're all finding refuge a little bit. Refuge as, and therapists, whatever. As much as possible. Um, but in addition to that, I, I think part of the reason for that sort of crawling back into our shell a little bit is the overwhelm of, of having to pay attention to every issue in our right. country right now. Right. Um, whether it's you know the environment or LGBTQ issues or immigration like it's it's really hard to keep a handle on all of it and to, to feel like i need to you know have something on the tip of my tongue for right for those yeah. solutions like uh, that's that's so interesting because there's this pressure right now to compete in what i call the woke olympics right like if you don't know the nuances of every issue the premise is that then you don't know anything and you shouldn't talk about it at all right and that's totally wrong and you know, when I was 22 or 23, I was lit on Sunday Funday, sort of sitting on a front stoop in D.C., and my friend kindly asked me to move so they could pass by. Ever the jackass, I sort of looked up and drunkenly said, I can't be everything for everybody. And I'm not proud of being a little shit from time to time, and it's kind of a ridiculous story, but the sentiment is true. We can't be everything for everybody. And this in this climate, we really do ourselves a disservice by even thinking that we can or that we should. Um, I, I think that the best way to be involved politically is to sort of start by picking the couple issues, you know, whether it's environment or, you know, whatever you may care about, um, and, and pick something that really sort of speaks to you, uh, that, that has an impact on you that you under, understand, where you're able to speak with credibility. There's this huge credibility gap in our politics, don't you think? I mean, like, you, you know, uh, in the same way that you and I and probably a lot of people listening feel this pressure to to be everything and know everything, I think politicians feel that too. And I think we sort of need to do a little bit better job as engaged voters and just sort of people with a pulse um, and sort of say, you can't be everything for everybody. And I, I don't want you to be everything for everybody. I don't, I don't expect... Uh, you know, I'm I'm black and I'm gay, right? I don't expect every person running for office and asking for my vote to sort of know what it's like to be a black gay man. Not to say that every black gay man has the same experience, right? But like, I think they sometimes try to to relate to all of us, and it's like, you know what? It's a, it's okay that you can't relate. Um, 
And, you know, so for those of you out there who I think are a lot like you, you know, I hope you find the one issue that um, that really means something to you. And and, you know, one of the I, I don't know, Jake, like in our in in the first recording, you mentioned um, wanting to sort of you asked what you could do to sort of move the needle, how you could be involved, yeah. what you thought I thought was the best way to be be involved. And I'm not claiming to be an expert on this by any mean, but I do think that like, you know, going to marches is great. Writing a letter to your senator, your member of Congress or your state representative or, or going to a committee hearing in your state your, or your city council, all that's great. And, you know, everybody has to be involved in their own way. But one of the most important things is like, just talk to people who have different experiences than you. And and I think one of the best ways to illustrate this that, that I can is, is if you look in the past, you know, however many years at the meteor, at the meteoric, uh, that's a hard word. The me- I don't even think I'm saying it right. At the really quick way views have changed uh, regarding gay marriage and sort of LGBT rights broadly, right? Um, gay marriage is not the only one and I'm not even going to pretend that it is and maybe we'll do another episode on LGBTQ plus issues um, in the future. I think one of the best examples is looking at the way public attitudes towards the LGBT community, be it same-sex marriage or, or uh, you know, the trans community or whatever, um, the, the way sh- uh, views towards the towards this community has changed so quickly in the past few years, you know. And there are a lot of people who deserve credit for that. A lot of people did really hard work. Um, and a lot of people, you know, put their lives on the line to make the progress that we see now. But, you know, I look at my friends from college and every every week we'd have what we'd call going gay. Um, and it was a night where, uh, you know, my friends, a lot of whom were, you know, you could categorize as like bros or whatever, you know, who were just really different than me. You know, some grew up in the suburbs. Obviously, Jake, we grew up in rural Minnesota. Some grew up, you know, in Chicago or other big cities, um, but a really diverse group of people. And and you know, one night a week, and we were drinking way too many nights a week, but uh, one night we would spend going to a place where I felt comfortable. And first of all, I I can't understate how empowering that was and just sort of important for my growth as a person. But also, like, think about these people who, you know, maybe had never had a gay friend before or had never, you know, seen a gay couple or a lesbian couple holding hands in public and to be exposed to that I think um, and to sort of see that no matter you know people try to tell us that we're so different from each other but despite our differences I think like my experiences in college really showed that like we do have more in common and I th- I, I really credit my friends and, and you know my friends from college my friends like you from, from high school with with um, you know, just sort of see being open to other points of view, to other experiences uh, as being um, the the change agents for how we got to this better place that we're in now. So all that to say, you know, um, if you want to be involved, be involved on something that that really means something to you because um, and connect with the people that are closest to you. Start there. Right. You don't know what you don't know. And when I don't know your experience, I don't know what you did in Chicago. Right. Um, you know, I know my life and when I learn those stories, like that only helps deepen my connection to you and your issues. Right. Like now those are like, 
you know, now I have a, a context to, to right. put those those sorts of issues in. Right. And I think like, you know, people want to be part of the solution. People really want to be part of the solution. Being part of the solution feels good. It's so easy to it's easy to tear something down from the outside, but it's really hard to build it from the inside. So, um, you know, if you're looking for a way to be involved, look, look around you um, and look, at, look at sort of the things that impact your everyday life and look at how you can change it for the better. Um, and when you do, people will react positively. So, Michael, I know you're a huge fan of Grant. Why is that? Oh, God. Okay, it's, it's time for a little confession, right? One of my biggest fears of starting this episode over was that somehow my man Ulysses S. Grant would get left out of the conversation. If you look at how history has treated Grant, he's very often overlooked. So being left out of our conversation would be very on-brand for Grant. So thank you for not letting that slip through the cracks. Here's the deal, just so we're all on the same page. Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, just as the Civil War was coming to a close. Andrew Johnson became president, and to be honest, I'm not fully sure why he was so bad, but the consensus is very overwhelming that the man was just up to no good. So, after Johnson, Grant was handily elected as the 18th president in 1868 as the Union Army hero who helped to end the war. Weird story. His name was actually Hiram Ulysses Grant. When he entered West Point, a clerk mistakenly wrote his name down as Ulysses S. Grant, and Grant was just too congenial to correct anyone. Now, can we just talk for a minute about how much bigger a person Grant is than most of us? Like, raise your hand if you've ever gotten very fussy when they've said your name wrong while announcing your order at Starbucks. Like, oh, thank you so much for this venti whatever. Like, it's, it's Michael, not Mitchell. Lord. Well, anyways. Uh, here's the other thing. Grant was so good at playing the long game, which I very often feel is the wise bet. His best friend and second-in-command was William Tecumseh Sherman, who we should probably talk about in another episode, so I'm going to make that note. But they got their asses royally handed to them by the Confederates on the first day of the Battle of Shiloh, which I think was fought in 1862. Grant came up to Sherman, who was hanging out in a tent or under a tree or some whatever they did in 1862, and was like, Well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? Grant was like, Yeah, we'll lick him tomorrow, though. The crazy thing is, they did. The Battle of Shiloh ended up being this moment of glory for Grant when the Union Army was really down on the map. The weird coincidence is that the country was so grateful for his victory that supporters started sending him boxes of cigars, which fueled his smoking addiction, which, along with his lifelong struggle with alcohol, ended up killing him from throat cancer. But that's just how the story ends. His administration had problems with corruption, a lot of which I think sort of stemmed from his tendency to be taken advantage of, because he misjudged the intention of those who weren't worthy of his trust. It seems like a lot of the good work that was done in the early days of Reconstruction originated with Grant. A lot of the actions taken to heal the country were undone by shitty Gilded Age presidents in the couple decades after him. But I'm going to do you a favor, summon all my strength, and resist going down that weird rabbit hole right now. If it's not obvious, I kind of love Grant, right? Not really because he was great, you know, like... We look at ourselves as this country and a people sort of in the mold of George Washington, right? Chopping down that cherry tree or whatever the hell it was, possessing this unquestionable integrity and nobly setting a precedent that the presidency belongs to the people, not one person, by stepping down after two terms. But really, we're a country more in the mold of Ulysses S. Grant. Pretty flawed, but well-intentioned. Just like us, Grant was sometimes his own worst enemy, a victim of what my friend Dito calls stepping on your own dick which I probably should not get in the habit of saying here. But 
Sometimes he made really bad decisions. And sometimes those decisions had really far-reaching consequences. But I don't love Grant because he was great. I love Grant as a figure in history because he was generally good. When he was wrong, I think there are a lot of examples of him doing what he could to right that wrong. And when he was down, which was a lot, he had this really admirable ability to remind himself that we're only losing until our next win, that we're only down until we get back up again. I'm trying to do a better job of remembering that myself. It's not easy, but I hope you are too. Some of you may have seen or read about an interview with Jason Kander that aired last week on CBS. For those of you who don't know, Jason was the Secretary of State of Missouri, first elected, I think, in 2012 after having served in the state legislature and doing a tour in Afghanistan, if I remember correctly, as an intelligence officer. He ran for the Senate against Roy Blunt in 2016 and lost by just a few points, which was really impressive considering Missouri's pretty rapid electoral shift towards Republicans since 2008. It's pretty crazy that except for I think three times since like 1908 or 1904 or something like that, Missouri's always been a pretty accurate barometer for how the country was going to vote in presidential elections. But anyways, Jason was running to be the mayor of Kansas City in 2019 or 2020, whenever their election is. I think it's pretty safe to say he was the front runner. Then, in October of last year, he announced that he was dropping out of the race to seek treatment for PTSD from his time spent in Afghanistan. Good for him, right? And he did this interview with Lester Holt, right? And it was a wide-ranging interview. And I look at the headline of the news article the next day and see, Former Democratic rising star and Afghanistan war veteran speaks out for first time about PTSD treatment. What the fresh fuck? Like, great for doing the story, but the fact that Jason Kander got help for PTSD doesn't make him a former anything. Like th this is one of the biggest problems in our in our in you know in our public conversations is that we sort of continue the stigmatization of people getting help and you know it's really easy to be mad at something and frankly in the first episode that we recorded and you know we don't have to go down that rabbit hole again but um, you know it I, I kind of went on a little bit of a rant about it and and then I decided to take my own advice right it's really easy to be mad and at the end of the day. I really want us to help fix the building. So instead of bitching about how awful CBS's headline was, I ask that anyone who may be listening who has any ability to influence the ways in which we talk about mental health, you know, with, with the ability to steer the conversation away from the stigmas of the past, to speak up. Words have consequences. Too often, well-meaning people forget that. I know I do. And to any veteran struggling with PTSD, or any new mom dealing with postpartum depression, or anyone out there struggling with their sexual identity, or whatever you're dealing with, know that the day that you get help isn't the day that you become a former anything. It's the day the life you deserve can begin. You know, Jake, I think we can agree that a lot of people have asked us what success for this weird podcast adventure looks like, and at the end of the day, I think it's this. Success would be creating a space for optimism, a space where mistakes can be admitted and where forgiveness is possible. Success would be more people realizing that there are a lot of us out here who reject the notion that life is a zero-sum game, who are ready to kick to the curb this cynical, disgusting premise that victory is best obtained by pitting people against one another. 
Success is more people assuming the best intentions in each other and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Success is playing a small part in the winning of elections by inspiring people to action, not by mobilizing them with fear. Success would be the realization that sometimes, if we do the hard work, we can come to view our breakdowns, both public and private, as virtue, not vice.